Today I'm speaking with Mark Bowden. Mark is the author of 13 books, including the number one New York Times bestseller, Black Hawk Down. Uh, he reported at the Philadelphia Inquirer for 20 years and now writes for The Atlantic and Vanity Fair, primarily. He's also a writer-in-residence at the University of Delaware. And his most recent book is Hue, 1968, A Turning Point for the American War in Vietnam. And uh, as you'll hear, Mark and I get uh, very deep into the topic of North Korea. He wrote this wonderful article, though a fairly harrowing one, about just how difficult and dangerous and intractable our stalemate with North Korea is. Uh, this came out in The Atlantic a few weeks ago. It, may, it might still be in the current issue of the magazine. But in this podcast, we essentially walk through the logic of that article, and um, you will know more about why we haven't solved the North Korea crisis, uh, though it's been a crisis for decades. And now, I bring you Mark Bowden. I am here with Mark Bowden. Mark, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me, Sam. Well, I've been a fan of, of yours for a long time. You, I think I, I mostly see you in the Atlantic. Do you, do you publish regularly somewhere else as a journalist? Mostly in the Atlantic. I do occasionally write for um, Vanity Fair and also for Sports Illustrated now and then. Well, I, I have missed you in Sports Illustrated, I must say. That says <laughs> more about me than about the rest of the world. I think many people will be familiar with your book, Black Hawk Down, which became a film. But perhaps you can describe your career as a journalist and as a writer thus far. What, what, what have you tended to focus on? Well, for about 20 years, I was a newspaper reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer. And there I covered just about everything imaginable from science to, you know, foreign assignments to transportation in Philadelphia to politics to cops. Uh, but gradually, the overarching direction of my career was always to do longer stories and stories that took more time to report and investigate. So I kind of graduated from daily newspaper stories to Sunday stories to Sunday magazine stories to Sunday magazine serials, and then to now to books and, and uh, magazine articles. Were you involved with the, the film version of Black Hawk Down? Did you write the screenplay? or I wrote the original draft of that screenplay, which I think they very wisely threw away. Uh -huh. And then they hired a wonderful screenwriter named Ken Nolan, who adapted it. Although I continued to work with Ken, and I worked closely with Jerry Bruckheimer and Ridley Scott throughout that whole um, wonderful experience, and uh, very happy with the way the film turned out. Nice. And, and now you just released a book on the Vietnam War, right? Which I haven't seen, but I, I think I've, I just read a review of in the in the New York Times book review. Is that right? Correct. It's called Hue 1968, and it tells the story of the Battle of Hue in Vietnam during the Tet Offensive. Ken Burns is releasing a big documentary on Vietnam in a couple of months, I think in September. He's going to be on the podcast. I might have to do my homework by reading your book. <laughs> I was at the screening of um, Ken Burns held a premiere in New York a few weeks ago, and I was lucky enough to get a ticket. So, and I've gotten to know the folks who worked on that project uh, over the years that I was working on my Huey book. That'd actually be a good event for you to do. You, you and Ken could be in dialogue somewhere and 
reawaken a, a public conversation about Vietnam. It seems like the moment has arrived. Well, we'll see. I think there might be some things like that in the works. I want to talk about one other piece briefly that you wrote, which you wrote a piece in The Atlantic in 2003 on torture titled The Dark Art of Interrogation, where you came to more or less the same position I did in my first book with respect to the ethics of it. And I, I hadn't read your piece until much later, and I've since recommended it to many people. Did you get much criticism for that article? Because I've encountered more or less nothing but pain for even touching the topic. Is that <laughs> what was your experience like? I, you know, I did get a, a good deal of criticism, but none of it very intelligent, actually. Most of the criticism, to my way of thinking, came from people who either hadn't read the, the essay or um, hadn't understood the argument that I was making. I think probably the main sticking point was. Um, that I argue that whether or not to torture or coerce someone is a moral decision. And a lot of people seem to cling to the idea that it's simply a pragmatic decision because torture never works under any circumstances, which I don't believe is true. Um, so I think just by virtue of the fact that I'm willing to say that I think torture is occasionally an effective way of getting information. That, of course, doesn't mean you ought to do it, but uh, that was enough to trigger a lot of criticism. Yeah, yeah. And, and your position that it should be illegal, but that we should recognize that there are situations where even good people would be tempted, understandably, to break the law, and that if you can't imagine such situations, you're actually not trying hard enough. That, that's a very novel argument, and it's one that I agree with. But I think I will spare us both a lot of pain by declining to talk about this topic anymore <laughs> on this podcast. All right. We can move on to far more cheerful topics like North Korea. Yeah. I, and I also say that the ethical implication of everything you and I have said on this topic is also shared by the, and this is something I've said before, but that great handbook of evil, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. If you look up torture in that reference work, which really is one of the best reference works in philosophy, you find a, a very clear argument for the same position. So if you think we are Torquemada, just you can, you can group us with Stanford as well. Well, it's nice to be in good company like that. Yeah. So North Korea, you, you wrote this piece. I think it's it's still in the current issue of The Atlantic, and the title is How to Deal with North Korea. There are no good options, but some are worse than others. And this is as stifling a piece as you would expect, given how we're essentially standing in front of four doors and none of them lead anywhere we want to go. And I want us to walk through this pretty systematically because it stands a chance of being the most consequential foreign policy issue of the present and, and the, the indefinite future. First, how did you go about reporting on this? Well, I thought it best to seek out people who have either worked on the North Korea issue in the military or in the White House or um, in the State Department and uh, who have spent years wrestling with what to do about North Korea. And in some cases, you know, in the cases of uh, some of the military commanders, have had to actually prepare for the various options. And 
pick their brains, ask them, you know, because uh, we have a president who sort of plays to the lowest common denominator. And I thought there was a real fear with some of the things that he was saying that he would he would kind of build a um, a level or a groundswell of support for um, trying to attack North Korea or to pressure it at least militarily. And I wanted to try to throw some cold water on the sort of on the simplistic thinking there and actually talk to people who had wrestled with this issue and lay out what in fact the options were. Well, remind people about how we got here. So how, how did North Korea become this, this blank space on the map? I mean, the images at night tell so much of the story. You have South Korea, which is just totally illuminated, like a 21st century society. And the North is just this sea of blackness outside of Pyongyang. So, so what is going on north of the DMZ? Well, you know, that country, North uh, Korea, uh, which was created after World War II, um, when Kim Il-sung was the, you know, Korean leader who helped with the um, Chinese to evict Japan, ended up in control in North Korea. And he established certainly one of the most bizarre regimes of modern times. It's really kind of a throwback to uh, a 17th century imperial state uh, in Europe where you have a hereditary dynasty. Um, with a whole mythology around uh, Kim Il-sung and since then his son and now his grandson, who are purported to be, you know, sort of divine, divinely uh, selected leaders of the Korean people. Their whole raison d'etre is to enable the Kim family to remain in power and to benefit from that position. And so they've, you know, built a very draconian totalitarian state that focuses most of its resources on building up its military and and in the last 20 or 30 years to developing nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, biological weapons, and missile systems that, you know, that we've now seen are capable of potentially reaching uh, Alaska and very soon will be capable of reaching the United States mainland. And I think that that effort has been so all-consuming and costly that it has drained North Korea of nearly every other option. Um, and it's been through long periods of very near starvation where, you know, it's estimated that millions of people starved to death in the 1990s. Those conditions have eased somewhat out of necessity. I think the regime has allowed the black market to uh, flourish a little bit, which, you know, people are eating anyway there. But there's very little else going on outside of the of the capital city of Pyongyang, which is kind of their, the Kim family showcase. As you point out, this is almost a religious cult. I mean, it's it's not otherworldly the way normal religious cults are, but it's clearly a personality cult that attributes magical powers to the dear leaders. I mean, these are almost the, the most confused people on earth in terms of how they view their place in the world. As Christopher Hitchens used to say, this is a, a nation of racist dwarves. Yeah, they're like three inches shorter than the South Koreans, and yet they think they're a master race. And I gotta imagine that the spell has been breaking for for some people somewhere in the society over you know over the recent decades. But apparently, they have thought that our the food aid they see coming from us is just 
like an awestruck offering to the genius of their dear leader for, by the, the West. And I think of them as kind of like a cargo cult armed with nuclear weapons. <laughs> Do we have any sense of what percentage of North Korean society believes the mythology? We don't have a good sense of that because there's not a lot of um, interaction between the Western world and North Korea. The journalists who go there you know, are given Potemkin village tours. I have spoken to a few who have done a, a longer term and a little wider reporting, and their sense of it is that most North Koreans are very cynical about the government, the way people are about governments everywhere, but that they don't dare uh, say what they think or speak out against it. I mean, the one thing we haven't mentioned is that North Korea is a very, very much a gulag state in that they have millions of people imprisoned for the slightest of offenses. And, you know, we've even failing to clap loudly enough at a public appearance of the dear leader can get you executed or thrown in jail. So, you know, whatever North Koreans think, uh, they're smart enough to keep it mostly to themselves. It seems to be the, the most successfully engineered Orwellian experiment the earth has ever seen. I mean, just in terms of its isolation and the totality of the totalitarian control and the, just the level of informing against family members. And it's just, have you seen that, the book, The Cleanest Race? Yes, I have. That's um, a Myers book, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, you know, which really does lay out the racist uh, underpinnings of their, of their, you know, philosophy and the bizarre nature, as you described, of their quasi-religious worship of their dear leader. I realize the news has moved on a little bit since you published your article, even just a couple of weeks ago, because that was right before this seemingly successful ICBM test. How big a problem is North Korea at this point for the rest of the world? I and mean, how would you rank order it in terms of our concerns for our own well-being and the, and the well-being of all the other implicated societies? Well, I think that it's far and away the largest national security concern of the United States. Everybody, I think largely because of media, you know, has this outsized fear of terrorist attack by Islamist fundamentalists, which is sort of a hangover from 9-11, which was 16 years ago. Um, I think that, you know, the threat of terror attacks will be with us always. But North Korea poses a threat on a completely different scale. They have weapons that could kill millions of people. Right now, they're, you know, the primary threat they pose is to South Korea and to Japan. Uh, but as their reach extends with uh, ICBMs, they, in the United States is also potentially a target. And while they don't have the kind of uh, arsenal to pose an existential threat to the United States, I do think that the prospect of a nuclear weapon being exploded over Los Angeles or any other American city is a pretty terrifying prospect. And one that, frankly, as this article goes on to explain, uh, there's very little we can do to uh, prevent short of deterrence. The implication of their recent missile test is that people agree that they can probably reach Alaska and Hawaii now, but not quite Los Angeles or the rest of the, the United States. But that should be coming in pretty short order. And, and then you are talking about, there really is no word to describe how crazy and irresponsible the 
statements are of the regime, whatever you think their actual motivations are and whatever you think their level of suicidality could be. But we have a completely maniacal regime, which in what's the outside estimate, a few years, five years, should be able to land a nuke on a city like Los Angeles or San Francisco? When I wrote the piece, which is just a few months ago, the estimate was three or four years. But this most recent ICBM launch, successful one, came much earlier than anticipated. So my guess is that we could probably even dial back the three and four years. It might be even closer than that. So in your article, you talk about four possible responses to the problem, and they all suck. <laughs> so let's, let's move through these. First, just tell me briefly, what are the four? And, and then we, we can just run through them. Well, the first would be uh, an all-out attack, what I call prevention, which would essentially crush the uh, Kim regime, would destroy its military, wipe out its uh, arsenals, and essentially you know, reduce North Korea to a stateless um, uh, humanitarian zone. The second I call turning up the screws, and that would be um, applying pressure through some form of military attack or embargo that would really hurt North Korea, and would, but would be short of an all-out attack, and that would seek to um, essentially prove to, uh, the, to Kim Jong-un that we mean business, and, and hopefully get him to recalculate his plans and back away. Uh, the third option is decapitation, and that would involve targeting Kim himself, or maybe Kim and a few of the key people around him, probably to assassinate them, or possibly, I guess, even more less, even less likely to arrest them, and uh, and thereby um, sort of take off the head of that state and, and hope that something um, more reasonable would follow. And the last option, uh, which may be the hardest to swallow, but which I think is probably inevitable, is acceptance, which is recognizing that nuclear technology, missile technology is old stuff. It's been around for more than a half century. Uh, lots of people know how to do it. And North Korea is eventually going to figure these things out and going to have these weapons. The paragraph in your article I want to read, which it's kind of central to why the first three options are seem to be more or less unthinkable. And it it's not necessarily what everyone would expect. It's not that the North Koreans already have nukes and then they can nuke South Korea or Japan or or one of our allies. Even their conventional arms makes this situation seemingly totally intractable from a, a military point of view. And so this is your text. For years, North Korea has had extensive batteries of conventional artillery, an estimated 8,000 big guns just north of the demilitarized zone, the DMZ, which is less than 40 miles from Seoul, South Korea's capital, a metropolitan area of more than 25 million people. One high-ranking U.S. military officer who commanded forces in the Korean theater, now retired, told me he heard estimates that if a grid were laid across Seoul, dividing it into three square foot blocks, these guns could, within hours, pepper every single one of them. This ability to rain ruin on the city is a potent existential threat to South Korea's largest population center, its government, and its economic anchor. 
Shells could also deliver chemical and biological weapons. That's the end of your, your text there. So the thing that makes any kind of military response, you know, however much of a surprise attack we could muster, so impractical is that it's like within minutes, the moment anything starts happening, they can just annihilate Seoul with their completely conventional artillery. And obviously, if you had evacuated millions of people from Seoul, you'd be tipping your hand as to what's happening. Is this really the issue that there's just no way for us to knock out his capacity to harm Seoul quickly enough so as to make any kind of prevention or decapitation or, or turning the screws approach practical? Yes. Yeah, that's the, it's the main reason why the United States hasn't done something like this a long time ago. When Richard Nixon was president, the North Koreans shot down an American warplane and killed, I believe it was 31 American service members on board. Uh, Nixon was not known to be a timid soul when it came to the use of military force, and he chose not to counterattack North Korea or to punish them uh, militarily for doing that. And that was back in, what, the early 1970s when this capability was already in place to attack Seoul. So the capability of North Korea to punish or to inflict death and ruin on South Korea has gone up and up and up and up. And I think it's even a little cynical uh, and probably sadly correct that Kim and his regime calculate that this would possibly not be enough of a deterrent for the United States, because after all, those are just South Koreans living in Seoul. Uh, for the most part. Uh, and so in order to have the level of security that he feels he needs, uh, the ability to attack the United States mainland has you know, been their great quest uh, in the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, so you know, the stakes have gone up so high at this point that uh, I think for any sane person, the only uh, policy priority ought to be to prevent conflict from breaking out. Well, let's take this the prevention case first, that this is the all-out attack that attempts to prevent anything, even a single shell emerging from North Korea headed toward the South. In your reporting on this topic, did you encounter any serious person with a good reputation in the military or policy circles who thinks that we should just attack North Korea all out and roll the dice with, with a prevention strategy? No. I didn't. Although some of the people I spoke to said there, it, it, there are people who hold that opinion and who have voiced it um, at the Pentagon, uh, but I don't believe that uh, at the highest levels that it would be something seriously considered. And this is because to do anything like that is synonymous with what, a, a minimum of some hundreds of thousands of deaths in Seoul, or we, or or a minimum of a million. I mean, how what what are the the estimates? Well, a minimum, I would say, yeah, would probably be hundreds of thousands, uh, and that's a very optimistic minimum. Um, you know, if North Korea was, you know, felt it was under all-out attack, um, the chances of it doing nothing but launching conventional shells at Seoul and at American bases in South Korea. It's fairly small. I think that the far more likely totals would be millions. So I mean, th this is one problem with the 
the second and third options. Well, so let's let's take the second option first, turning the screws. Remind our listeners what that is and and why it's problematic to consider. Okay, but first, if I could, Sam, I'd like to go back to the first option sure, again. Sure, sure. If we assume, and I think it's everyone I've talked to agrees, who knows anything about the the actual weapons involved, that it's unrealistic, Fant- fantastical is a word I heard used, that we were completely successful. We were able to attack North Korea and destroy all of its capability without them getting off a single shot, without being able to kill a single American or South Korean, we would then be left with a totally stateless North Korea, which would create one of the greatest humanitarian crises in modern times, would flood China with millions of refugees, would flood South Korea with millions of refugees, and would leave the United States with the responsibility of essentially moving in and trying to govern a North Korea that would have, because it's a very rugged terrain, pockets of resistance likely throughout that country, also very likely possessing um, nuclear material, chemical and biological weapons, a situation that would make our occupation of Iraq seem like a, taking your kids to, for a walk to the local playground uh, by comparison. So there is no way either through you know an attack that would you know result in only a few chemical weapons exploding to an all-out success that no calculation of this works to our benefit. Yeah, I'm really glad you you made that point because the, the best case scenario is so horrible once you think of the implications because it, and you can add to what you just said the fact that our perfectly targeted surprise attack will have killed hundreds of thousands millions of North Koreans, right? And now now we're occupying them, having created that devastation. And then so you add to the, you know, the, that obvious grievance, whatever percentage of people are truly brainwashed and incorrigible and still think they're the master race being invaded by barbarians, that occupation is not going to be a pretty one. It's, you know, one of the reasons why the answer to your question, whether I had encountered any person in authority or who has actually seriously looked at this who would argue in favor of a preventative attack, the answer is no. I don't know of anybody sensible who would advocate such a thing. But moving to your second question about turning the screws, this would be, um, actually frightens me more as something that could happen. And that is that we would attack North Korea in a limited way, but it would have to be in a way that would hurt them. I mean, we would have to like take out their nuclear reactor or or destroy a fairly large number of their uh, missile sites, uh, or you know launch a cyber attack that would shut down their electrical grid or or erect an embargo on all shipping in and out of North Korea. There are steps the United States could take, short of all-out war, that would create serious pain in North Korea. And the idea there would be that it would force Kim to think before taking his next step uh, and possibly retreat. But I think a far more likely outcome would be a retaliation of some sort, which would set off, it seems to me, very likely a, an escalating tit-for-tat that could, I think, rapidly lead us to the disaster scenario of, of the first option. Yeah, and even before that, I think it's a point you make in your article, 
this more limited attack could be indistinguishable from their point of view from a, an all-out attack. They wouldn't actually know we were just going for a limited attack. They could think we're trying to annihilate them and respond accordingly. Sure. I mean, I think it's one thing for us to intend a limited strike, but you know, on their end, a limited strike could look very much like the real thing. And uh, you know, it, it could easily trigger the very response that it's designed to prevent. Did you talk to anyone, any representatives of the South Korean government here? Or was this just through the lens of, of how the, the U.S. military thinks of it? I was just looking and talking to American military people, although I visited um, South Korea about two or three years ago, and I, and I did a lot of interviewing of uh, South Korean military and intelligence people. I was working on a profile of Kim Jong-un, and we spoke uh, a lot about what their posture has been toward uh, North Korea. And if anything, you know, they would be even more uh, disinclined to, to begin any kind of uh, military conflict with North Korea, since obviously their countrymen would be the ones doing the dying. So door number three, decapitation. Well, decapitation is uh, the kind of thing that would appeal to a Hollywood screenwriter as a, you know, magic bullet. Uh, it would be extremely difficult to accomplish, given that the entire military apparatus of North Korea, in one sense, exists to protect Kim Jong-un. Uh, and so to penetrate a country like that with secrecy, uh, to turn someone in his inner circle uh, to enable, say, launching a, a missile strike or a drone strike or a special operations unit that would assassinate him, uh, is just very implausible. But uh, if it were to succeed, let's say, you know, the military is a whole lot more clever than I think they are, um, they could do this. We would be basically gambling that, first of all, North Korea wouldn't immediately respond with uh, a counterattack on South Korea or launching its um, missiles, because this would, after all, be an attack on the most important single person or feature of their regime. And secondly, it would be the kind of uh, attack that wouldn't, that would leave their arsenals and their artillery batteries completely intact. Uh, if they chose to respond, they would be able to respond in full force, at least with the first option, you would have, you know, potentially eliminated 90% of their capability before they could, you know, fire the first shot. In this case, they'd have 100%. Yeah. Do we know much about Kim Jong-un's habits? Is he the kind of person who, I would imagine he is, who sleeps in a different place every night? Or how crazy is it to think that we could ever target him directly from afar? I don't think it's crazy, but it's implausible is the word I would use. They, they do move him around a lot. They keep his, his location and his appearances uh, are very closely held. Uh, they're a very paranoid state. They've announced many times the, you know, the ostensible efforts to assassinate Kim, some of which may actually have been real. Um, and so, you know, they know that he's a target, and uh, I don't think they're stupid. So you've said that you were not encountering serious people who were advocating prevention, that is an all-out attack. Are you encountering serious people who advocate turning the screws or decapitation? Yes. Some of the military people I spoke to 
seem to think that um, North Korea may perceive the United States as a um, paper tiger, that we bluff all the time and that we, you know, are not willing to um, engage them militarily. And that's, you know, been true because of the consequences. So the thinking is that if we administered a hard dose of reality to the regime, that they might pause and uh, decide that the course they're pursuing is unwise. Uh, so yeah, there you do hear those voices um, here and there. So that would be an example of turning the screws or decapitation, one or the other. If we if we targeted the regime and successfully, that would be decapitation, and then we would just be waiting to see how crazy the, the the next regime turned out to be it really it matters which side of this you you emphasize because the the, the paper tiger concern also does seem to be a real one right I mean, the fact that we are sitting on our hands and have been for now more than a generation and one we don't acknowledge how helpless we are really i mean we're not we we have presidents on either side of the aisle who have spoken forcefully against whatever regime was in power there and warned them that everything was on the table. But it's pretty obvious that not much of anything is on the table, right? So what do you do with the concern that the perception of us as a paper tiger in this case seems to be true? It is true. And that's, you know, the logic behind those who argue that we need to do something like take out their nuclear reactors or strike a blow that would make it clear that we are willing and able to hurt them um, and and have in fact hurt them. So uh, one person said, and I think I quoted him in the story saying the way, the way to show that you're not bluffing is to stop bluffing. So, you know, that is wh- where you will find some, especially military people who uh, believe that it's time that we started up, started turning the screws. Did you, in those conversations, hear any details of how we might do that beyond bombing stuff? Is there a possibility of turning off the electrical grid or or something that would, would be paralyzing to them technologically without blowing things up? Yes. Yeah, I didn't include all of the potential um, options that I discussed, but uh, among them, you know, would be if you were going to launch a military strike, it would have to be something that would hurt them, that would set back their program, either for missiles or nukes. That obviously flirts with the worry that they would perceive it as an all-out attack. If a cyber attack um, is another possibility, doing something like, you know, destroying whatever in Pyongyang, because that would be the only place where there would be a significant electrical grid, I think... That, however, you know, the further, the longer I discuss this, uh, because, you know, analysts talk about these things, uh, and when you get into a conversation, you're kind of thinking them through, but everyone seemed to agree that in in this day and age, the precursor to any all-out attack would be a cyber attack, no matter who we were attacking. So there is a very real possibility that a cyber attack, even though it wouldn't blow up anything, potentially wouldn't anyway, um, would still be perceived as the opening um, salvo in an all-out attack. Another possibility would be, as I mentioned a little earlier, an embargo uh, to basically shut down all shipping in and out of North Korea 
which would have a very damaging effect and would be a step short of a straightforward military strike. The problem there is that that would put us in a position of confrontation with Russia and China, who are engaged in trade with North Korea. Uh, we we also are facing a, a sort of a, a paranoid hair trigger regime in North Korea that could very well react to an embargo by attacking American ships, and then we've got a shooting war. So yeah, you mentioned Russia and China here. Now, in the best possible world, if we had Russia and China as our perfect allies and all they wanted to do was help with this situation, does that transform it? Is there a path forward with, in particular, China deciding a nuclear North Korea is unacceptable? Or would China, in that case, essentially be in the same situation we're in? I think it would help a lot. Uh, if, we had, if we could rely on China alone, they could pressure North Korea um, a lot more than, than North Korea has been pressured. China trades extensively with North Korea. In fact, you know, from what I know of that country, most of the goods that people buy in North Korea are Chinese made. Uh, China supplies, you know, fuel, oil, and electricity to North Korea. Russia is also selling oil to North Korea. So to the extent that there is a, a growing and affluent sort of upper middle class in Pyongyang, they could be made to feel the pressure in a big way if China and Russia were to get on board. But of course, neither has been particularly willing to do it. Just from a kind of a game theoretic point of view, I, I don't actually see how that changes the situation much because I can see how it we at first would think it would change. But again, now you're just successfully applying pressure to a lunatic regime that is threatening to kill its neighbors if you apply too much pressure to it. Why couldn't the North Koreans just say at that point, you know, give us our oil or our food or both, or we're going to annihilate Seoul? Well, I don't think that they're quite as lunatic, even though it's a crazy regime, without a doubt. I think that by applying economic pressure, and you could with the cooperation of China, that would really begin to hurt um, the, the relatively well-to-do North Koreans in Pyongyang, um, it would, I think you would do that in conjunction with a carrot. Uh, you would say, you know, you would make it clear how those sanctions could be eliminated or lifted. And that would, it could possibly focus the question very effectively for Kim Jong-un that to continue to pursue an ICBM with a nuke on board would mean, you know, the continued collapse of their economy uh, and, you know, the tremendous dislocations that would occur in Pyongyang if that were to happen. And that would be well short of, of a military strike. And also, if it was being applied by China, uh, they wouldn't have their boogeyman uh, to blame necessarily for it, or at least not wholly. So to me, if you're going to apply pressure that would possibly make him back down, uh, that's about the only avenue I can see that would be unlikely or less likely to result in open conflict. Yeah, I guess because my perception is that North Korea has already been terribly oppressed by its economic situation. I mean, this is a, we're talking about a, a society where 
well, at least a million people, what, or two million people have starved, and, and it's just there's, there are food shortages all the time. But the reality is, is that given China's enabling of this situation, the people in power haven't felt this pain. I mean, they're still drinking cognac and, and making their, their weird movies. And one of the downsides for them, too, is that the success that they've had in creating a relatively good standard of living for an increasingly large number of people in Pyongyang, albeit this we're talking about only a tiny fraction of the whole population of North Korea, but the people in Pyongyang, as you grow that, um, uh, as you grow that caste that is benefiting by the policies of the regime and the, and the continued existence of the Kim dynasty, as you grow that number of people, you increase the potential for someone like China to apply pressure. Uh, because, you know, these are, you know, we're talking about the extended family of Kim himself and, and all the people who live and work in Pyongyang. These are the only people who matter in North Korea. And so if you hurt them, uh, you could, that's about seems to me the only reasonable way to apply pressure to Kim. And as those people prosper, that opportunity grows. Yeah, it's an interesting point. So now how do you view this conflict with Trump in the driver's seat? Does that give you just this great feeling that we have the world's greatest negotiator in charge and he's going to make them a deal they can't refuse? Well, you know, he he scares me uh, because he is an irrational actor. He isn't someone who, at least in his past has shown any real moral compunctions. Uh, he doesn't um, think through things strategically or, or seriously, in my experience. I actually know him. Uh, he's a man who will boast to you that he's never read a book in his life. We're going to come back to that, Mark. You just set my hobby horse rocking. I, I'm, I'm probably into my 20th hour talking about Trump on this podcast. So, <laughs> so I want to know, know what you know about him, but, but please continue. But he is also, the one thing he does do and has done very effectively is play to the lowest common denominator. And his boasting that he will prevent Kim Jong-un from, you know, building an ICBM is, you know, you know if he would be without restraints around him, without more sensible people around him, I think perfectly capable of doing something really foolish that could lead to millions of people being killed. Uh, you know, he is you know, the least competent person, I think, to ever be elected to the White House. I think he's, he's a joke. And um, it's a really bad joke. And I just feel it's very, very dangerous where North Korea is concerned. Yeah, well, I, obviously, I, I totally agree with you. It's one of those, but it, it's, it's very strange to encounter the perception on the other side, because people imagine that his kind of breaking of the mold of the professional politician and the professional president is a real strength. You know, you you got this wrecking ball swinging all over the surface of the earth right now, and all of our enemies now need to take notice because there's, there's no telling what Trump will do, and that this is a a good thing across the board. We're we're shaking things up. I guess I could imagine a situation where it's a good thing or conceivably a good thing for your president to be perceived as the, the craziest person in the room. I mean, I guess it gets good conceivably when your adversary really doesn't want to be attacked and really doesn't want to die. And 
is really concerned that you will use force. But when you get to regimes that are not quite as rational, the extreme case would be a the jihadist version of this, where you have people who claim to be suicidal and, and I think you should take them at their word. What is the most charitable reconstruction of the pro-Trump line here that you can put forward? Is there any, I mean, is there any way you can see a silver lining to Trump vis-a-vis the North Korea situation? The only way I could see it possibly uh, working to our benefit is if somehow Kim Jong-un would fear uh, what Donald Trump would do. I don't think he would. I don't think he cares, frankly, about most North Koreans. Uh, He doesn't answer to an electorate. He is in power for as long as he's breathing. And every effort would be made to protect him. Um, And he is, it seems to me, uh, very capable of launching attacks on South Korea. Of uh, he would be far less reticent, um, certainly than South Korea, uh, and also you know than uh, most American military leaders to engage in this kind of a conflict. So you know, I just don't I don't see the unpredictability of Donald Trump working to anyone's benefit here in that region. And, and when you're talking about nuclear weapons, uh, predictability is important. Uh, you know, it's, it's well and good in, in a world of conventional arms that your enemy is off balance and worried that you might attack them. But a miscalculation in a nuclear age, in the nuclear age, is just the consequences are just so unthinkably awful. And that's why for most of my lifetime, the major thrust of military policy worldwide has been to prevent the use of nuclear weapons and and also chemical and biological weapons. Uh, So any unpredictable actor who's dropped into that mix is really bad, not just for the United States and Korea, but for humanity. And so what is the the lesson here with respect to proliferation? I mean, is it that it really matters that you get nukes because once you do, the world really can't deal with you? No one can really successfully coerce you? And it's really both sides of it. It's like, we can't really do anything with our nukes. So they're, they're kind of unusable. I guess there, there's a, an argument for disarmament on that level or, or, or drawing down to the, the absolute minimum required to respond to um, a first strike. But nobody's contemplating the first use of nuclear weapons apart from the maniacs. And the maniacs have learned that if you have nukes, you have paralyzed the rational actors of the world. I think that's right. Uh, I think, however, um, and, and, and I think you might, Sam, be using the word maniac a little bit loosely. Uh, you know, it actually makes sense what you're saying. And, uh, you know, I can see someone like Kim Jong-un very rationally arriving at that conclusion. In this case, I'm, I'm talking about moral maniacs, the kind of people who would say, we're going to annihilate these innocent people over here without a qualm, unless you give us what we want. Yeah, well, that, that's fair. But I do think that in order to put yourself in that position, you have to be willing to completely isolate yourself. And while China and Russia have continued to trade somewhat with North Korea, uh, the reason that we can't bring sufficient pressure on them, or we haven't been able to, is that they don't have ties with the rest of the world 
they've had to make themselves into an outlaw regime. And, you know, Iran is a good counterpoint. Iran is a country which also has pursued nuclear weapons and believes they need them to prevent, um, you know, being attacked. And, and it would help prevent them from being attacked. But they also have extensive trading ties and banking ties throughout the world. And so I, they made the calculation uh, during the Obama administration. And, you know, when Obama was able to get many countries around the world and the key trading partners with Iran to get on board with that, with the uh, nuclear pact that we signed with them. And we pressured Iran into halting their nuclear program for at least 15 years. So they are, they're susceptible. So I just don't think there are many regimes that, like the one that Kim Jong-un has, uh, that would find it um, acceptable to so completely isolate themselves for that one reason. And that would be to build a weapon that they couldn't use without being destroyed themselves. Yeah, it's really integration with the rest of the world is key here. It's a key strength, obviously, but it's it's also a a weakness if you suddenly find yourself the adversary of all humanity. Insofar as you care to get your next shipment, or you 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 like being connected to the internet or anything else. I mean, I think it goes to how odd this regime is and how impoverished that country is. Uh, you know, any other I think form of government in North Korea would have to be somewhat interested in the welfare of the people of the country. But, you know, this is a purely totalitarian, draconian state, and, you know, opposition or even disgruntlement is not allowed. So I just don't see too many places like that emerging. It's just a gigantic hostage situation. And the hostages, to whatever degree, are brainwashed. You know, they have Stockholm Syndrome to the ultimate degree. And I think China is largely to blame for it. I mean, back in the Korean War, the reason that the United States and the South Koreans halted it at the demilitarized zone, what is it, the 37th parallel, was because the Chinese intervened to, to, to prop up Kim Il-sung and to perpetuate that regime. I don't think they could have predicted, you know, how weird it would become uh, over the generations. But uh, it has really become the strangest anomaly among nations in the world in the modern age. And uh, I, I do think I'm a great advocate of nonproliferation. I, I think it's a, the only sensible policy to pursue and disarmament. Uh, but I don't think, you know, North Korea is just the sort of the exception that proves the point. Did you know what percentage of South Koreans hope for reunification of the peninsula? Many. It's a pop. It's a popular um, issue in South Korea. Uh, you know, we we've been talking just about the United States' posture toward North Korea, but you know, the South Koreans are um, uh, far less warlike than the United States in their posture toward North Korea. I think what they fear more than anything is the collapse of the Kim dynasty, because it would stick South Korea with the responsibility uh, for essentially uh, care and feeding of a disabled you know, country, you know, of roughly the same size as the one they have, it would be devastating to their economy. Uh, you know, I think that it's a fantasy and it's one that, you know, down the road people would like to see happen, but um, it's not something they want right away. 
Yeah, it would make the reunification of Germany seem just trivial by comparison. I mean, that would be an amazing thing to witness, even if it was done not as the consequence of a war, even if it, even if everyone agreed that this is what we want to do, it's time, time to reunify all Koreans. That would be amazing to behold. Well, you know, Moon Jae-un, the, uh, the, the new president of South Korea, is, uh, you know, has try, tried to restart negotiations with Pyongyang uh, for reunification. He most, he more recently just made a, a, uh, a an offer to combine uh, the South Korea and North Korea's uh, athletes to to form a you know a single Korean entry into the Olympic Games. Um, you know these are the level at which South Korea is willing to engage with um, North Korea. And I we do know that you know when the uh, anti missile system, the THAAD system, was being installed earlier this year, that there were hundreds of thousands of South Koreans protesting the installation of anti-missile systems. These are missiles that would intercept, you know, any North Korean uh, missiles that would be aimed at South Korea. So that was considered by many South Koreans to be too provocative a step. So, you know, there is a real moral question here. I mean, where the United States may, you know, be as belligerent as it wants in, you know, Donald Trump's tweets, but our allies in South Korea are the ones on the front lines and the ones who are going to be, you know, be shot at. So I don't think the United States can act independent of their wishes. Yeah, yeah. So talk me through acceptance to whatever degree you can here. So let's fast forward a couple of years, and now North Korea has a missile that we know is tipped with an appropriately miniaturized nuke that can reach, at minimum, the, the entire west coast of the U.S., so... Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle. What does acceptance look like? Does it, do you think we can just recalibrate and suddenly see this as no different than the world we were living in under the Cold War? Or is this a new sort of Damocles over our heads that we really can't quite accept? And this, this is a kind of a long emergency. I do think that's where we'll end up. Um, and that's a terrible situation and it's a bitter, bitter pill to swallow this is something that the united states has been committed to preventing for 40 years and we haven't been able to prevent it uh so i mean acknowledging that this is likely going to be the case what does it mean on one hand i mean it really doesn't change the situation all that much when you consider that north korea has had this capability of killing millions of South Koreans, and not to mention the 30,000 American troops who are stationed in South Korea, you know, unless somehow their lives are inherently less significant than the lives of Americans living in Los Angeles or, or San Francisco, you know, the consequences of uh, North Korea using these weapons are the same. It's, you know, how many, I think I wrote somewhere, that how many times can you multiply infinity? I mean, when you're talking about millions of people it's just, it's, it's beyond conception, the level of tragedy that would be entailed. So I think that it doesn't really alter the strategic dynamic all that much. And it's a, some, it's a much less dangerous situation than the one I lived through growing up in the 50s and 60s when, you know, the, I can remember the Cuban Missile Crisis where 
you know, the projections were 20 minutes of, you know, that within 20 minutes we could have incinerated most of the Northern Hemisphere. That was a far more dangerous period of American life. And, and we, you know, were able, deterrence worked. Uh, that was mutually assured destruction. In this case, we're only talking about assured destruction because as terrible as it would be for North Korea to strike an American city with a nuclear weapon, it would not be the destruction of the United States of America as it would have been during the Cold War. It would be a terrible thing, but it would be the total destruction of North Korea, without a doubt. So what is the likelihood that North Korea is going to take that step? I think that as much as people like to disparage Kim Jong-un as being crazy, his steps have been very predictable since he took power, what, four years ago now, four or five years ago. Um, in some ways, he's far more predictable than our current president. Uh, so I don't put a great deal of trust in him or in the North Korean regime, but I don't think they're suicidal. And I do think using a weapon like that would be suicidal. Well, this has been a barrel of laughs, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll have to talk about something more lighthearted sometime. Before I, I let you go on with, with your um, very productive life as a long-form journalist, tell me what you know about Trump. <laughs> well, I spent a long weekend with Donald once at Mar-a-Lago. I did a, back in 1996, I think it was, a profile of him for Playboy magazine. And at the time, you know, the Donald, who is very, very proud of being the only man ever featured on the cover of Playboy magazine, and a big fan of the whole Playboy concept, uh, was willing to basically invite me into his life. And I flew down to Mar-a-Lago with him and his then wife, Marla, and their little girl, Tiffany, on his jet. And I hung out at Mar-a-Lago with him. And I, you know, had a chance to really talk to him and observe him in action. And I came away feeling like this is one of the most loathsome human beings <laughs> I've ever met in my life. Uh, you know, just a, I don't know what I could say, I would recommend that you read the story, but someone who throws, you know, temper tantrums, who lies about everything, I mean, just about everything he told me turned out not to be true. Um, I witnessed him throw a big temper tantrum out on his tennis courts where he didn't like the way that the, the uh, electric pumps were mounted on the water fountains between these beautiful clay courts that they have down there at Mar-a-Lago. So he started kicking and pulling and yanked up the uh, motor and broke the water lines and flooded all the courts. And then he was embarrassed uh, and, he, and he knew that I had witnessed this. So he came up to me and he said, well, I guess, you know, that'll have to be in the story. And I said, yeah, pretty much. That's going to be in the story. And so then he, I think, you know, started to worry about it. And I remember on the flight home, he essentially just offered me the opportunity to write his next book, uh, which was, you know, clearly a bribe because he knew that he probably wasn't going to like the story that I wrote about him. Um, so, you know, I've never had anybody behave like that and with me. And, and I mean, he was on his best behavior, I presume, because he knew I was there to observe him and, and write about him. So to me, the idea at that point that he would someday be president of the United States is just so laughable. I, I, you know, life just continues to throw curves that I would never have imagined. Yeah. Well, I, you know, that's, that's always been my perception of him. And again, you know, all of the animus I have expressed toward him, about him on this podcast is driven by an impression that certainly predates his 
run for office. You know, I've I've never met him, and I, I haven't really focused on him, but he's obviously he's been famous for decades now, and he has always struck me as just the most morally shallow person in the public sphere. And also just outrageously incompetent. I mean, he, at the time I was hanging out with him, had destroyed his businesses. They, they were all being run by court-appointed businessmen because he had run them all into the ground. And in fact, at the time, he told me that, you know, he'd lost all his money. And at one point, he was like the poorest man in Fifth Avenue. Uh, but the, the reason that he survived that period was not because he was brilliant, but because so many people had invested so heavily that his sinking, Donald's sinking would have destroyed a lot of other people. And so they basically shored him back up. And, and at that point, he stopped being a businessman completely. He was just... He's the real estate version of North Korea. Yeah, he, he stopped being a businessman. He became just a, a brand name. And then, you know, he would boast about that. I mean, if, you know, you put my name, Trump, on something and it'll become hugely successful. And that, in fact, hasn't proved to be true. And then, you know, things like, oh, I mean, I could go on and on about Donald Trump. Deeply anti-intellectual person, by which I mean he's not hateful toward intellectuals or people who actually know something. He just feels there's no point to it because he believes he is gifted with a gut feeling about things that's right and that he has this unerring instinct and no amount of failure in his life from personal failure to professional failure disabuses him of this notion and uh and you know and yet you you know it's so hard hard to see him running for president and to see people touting him as this business great business genius and <laughs> or him touting himself he's, he's the loudest proponent of himself in the world uh, it's just appalling. The irony there is that a sufficient degree of delusion leads to your success. I mean, it is, it is self-confirming, you know, because he's, he is president really as a result of being that incorrigible. You know, there's nothing that can cause him to visibly doubt himself. And he's managed to take in nearly half of the society with this perfect con job. Yeah. And I think it was, also dropped into, in some ways, a perfect storm politically. I mean, here you have this big, tall, blonde, supposedly successful businessman, you know, running for president to replace the first African-American president in American history. And I, don't tell me that didn't strike a deep chord in this country and that racism isn't still very much alive. And I see race as a big factor, as were you know, the, some of the failings of the Obama administration and the economic hardships of, uh, you know, blue-collar Americans everywhere. And I, I think to some extent there's a kind of like, you know, you know fuck them mentality. Let's just, uh, you know, let's, you know, get rid of everybody and start over again. And who cares who's in charge? That's the wrecking ball concept, you know. You know, that, that's a strain in American politics that's long been there. I just think, uh, you know, frankly, Donald is loathsome as he is as a person. You know, I didn't really dislike him all that much. I felt he was kind of harmless, you know, in his world in New York. He's harmless when he's not running the world. Exactly. Now it's, you know, how in the world could this have happened? <laughs> so now how do you view the current Russia scandal? I mean, so we're now having this conversation a few days after Don Jr. had to release his emails. I'll probably release this a week hence, so I, we don't know how the the investigation will have moved on in the interim. But 
at this moment, it seems like there is a lot to talk about with respect to kind of the narrow case for collusion with Russia and just this this general messy picture of not being forthcoming about all the ways in which Trump and the family and the surrogates and the, the, the campaign had dealings with Russia and they've been reluctant to disclose them and they, they only disclose them under the duress of more stuff leaking out. What is the connection to Russia, in your view, if you had to bet? If I had to bet, I would say the Russians very smartly played Trump, definitely tried to influence the outcome of the election, uh, and recognized probably early on that they were not dealing with uh, very shrewd actors. Uh, you know, uh, someone like Donald Trump Jr. or Paul Manafort, these are people with no rudder to guide them. You know, they just, I think, just like Donald Trump Sr., uh, you know, Donald Trump Jr. just reacts to events. And, you know, when you're running for president, you know, I have no doubt that Donald Trump himself would have welcomed the help of Russians if they were hurting Hillary Clinton in the campaign. It would never have occurred to him that this was an unpatriotic thing to do or that there was an obligation, you know, as a United States citizen, not to try to undermine our election process. What I don't think is that Donald Trump actively would have actively colluded with the Russians in doing this because, frankly, they wouldn't be stupid enough to spell out to him exactly what they were up to. Well, it will be interesting. Do you think we're going to have Trump for four years or eight years, or do you think impeachment is a coin toss away? I don't think there will be an impeachment. And frankly, as much as I despair with Donald Trump in the White House, uh, I think it would be a bad thing to happen because... Any, you know, effort to take out Donald Trump, you know, through impeachment would just throw fuel to the fire that there's this deep state and there's this, uh, you know, secret conspiracy of uh, intellectuals all over the United States to create some sort of left-wing autocracy. I think far better that he continue to stumble his way through four years. You know, to my Democratic friends, I tell them instead of rooting for impeachment, you ought to be out recruiting people to vote, start winning the elections in 2018 and uh, get a good candidate to put forth in, in three and a half years, which is I'm counting down the days. So my hope is that the, the Trump period will be brief, that we'll get through it without train, triggering nuclear war in uh, the Korean Peninsula, uh, and that we'll still have something left of our economy and our dignity when those four years are up. Interesting. I'll have to think about that because I've been rooting for impeachment, but now you've you've put me back on my heels. I'll have to invite you back on if it becomes clear it's going one way or the other. But it's hard to know what to hope for at the moment. It's just keep your sense of humor, Sam. It's really important. Okay. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I need that reminder from time to time. Uh, well, listen, Mark. It's really been great to talk to you, and um, just tell our listeners where they can. Get your stuff most reliably online. Are you on Twitter? Are you? Do you have a website you want them to know about? No, I'm a dinosaur. Uh, you know, I write for the Atlantic. So if you go to the Atlantic's website, which is theatlantic.com, or pick up the magazine, you'll see my stories. Uh, Vanity Fair. I, you know, frequently contribute to them. My newest book is Way 1968. It's on sale everywhere. I'm writing all the time. Great. Well, keep it up, Mark. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure, Sam. I enjoyed talking to you. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. 
You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website. That's samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.